So I literally just finished the London Olympics, spent four weeks in a lovely five-star hotel, going to all the all the events. Alana there was there with Molly. Um, next time I'm in the desert again in Benghazi. And then it was September 11th, 2012, and your American ambassador got killed that evening. At this point, we didn't really know what was going on. We were just asked if we could help get an oil company, KCA Doitag, out of the city and back to Tripoli. So when we did our ev evacuation plans, we had safe houses around the country. The weapons were based there, um, but never, Touchwood never had to use the, any of the weapons yet. But it was just a, a comfort to know that they were there if we needed them. And so I grabbed these guys. I just tipped up and they're like, didn't even know who I was. I was like, yeah, I've come to take you away. And they're like, okay, we'll go wherever you take us. Just get us out of this city. Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Bazzullo. Our guests today are the inspiring power couple, Alana and Dean Stott. Born in Scotland, Alana Stott is a mother, entrepreneur, author, and philanthropist who has raised millions for causes such as mental health, and the fight against human trafficking. This year, she was awarded the title of member of the most excellent order of the British Empire, MBE, on the King's honor list for her work supporting vulnerable women and mental health awareness. Her husband, Dean Stott, is a former member of Great Britain's Special Boat Service, their equivalent of SEAL Team 6. After leaving the military, he quickly transitioned to the private security sector, where he has carved out a reputation for being willing to take on any job, no matter how dangerous. Today, Alana and Dean run their own private security company, which has successfully dealt with extortion, kidnapping, civil war, pirates, and military coups. In 2014, Dean Stott single-handedly evacuated the Canadian embassy in Libya, rescuing four diplomats and 18 military personnel. Alana and Dean are firm believers that nothing is impossible or out of reach. It's my great honor to welcome them as today's Heroes Behind the Headlines. Heroes Behind Headlines with Ralph Pizzullo. Let's start with a little bit about your background. Alana, you want to start? I was born in Aberdeen in Scotland. Grew up in, I guess, a relatively impoverished area, but, you know, full of love, all that kind of thing. I think, guess it, my first turn was when I was burnt when I was eight. So I ended up... Wow. Um, in hospital for about six months and that really took a big a big change in how my life would be so I was in a, a pressure garment for a long time couldn't participate in sports for a year afterwards I had to be in this 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 thing that basically restricted all my movement oh my god I guess after that my younger brother was born my mom and dad had got divorced and then I started working when I was 11 and my mom passed away when I was 15. So from that point, it was I had the responsibility of my younger brother, paying the rent, the bills, things like that. So I've always worked for my, my whole life, really. From So I'd say full-time from 13. I went mm -hmm. into telesales, sales environments around that time. So I started making some good money. 
Um, I worked door-to-door sales for a long time, and that's how I got into debt collecting. So debt collecting was probably my first kind of major job. That's a tough job, isn't it? Yeah, you know, and it was was a very male-dominated environment, for sure, when I started. And it was a way that I was never going to be able to, to work the way that the guys worked. So I had to develop my own methods of of collecting and and what I worked out there was if I helped people um I was more likely to get paid so I used to do budget plans with them work out what had gone wrong how they could get out of it smart very smart yeah yeah I uh, I became one of the the top debt collectors in Scotland after that and worked out I was really good with money I was good with helping people so those became two of the things I got into and I started working as a bank manager when I was 25 met Dean a few years later when I was working in, in the bank. Uh, Dean, the first thing that Dean asked me was, is banking what you've always wanted to do? And I was like, no, I want to be a spy. <laughs> and he said, he said, okay. So, uh, the very next day, he brought the application form for MI6 into me. And, uh, uh, a friend on the phone who worked there to give me some advice. He just had it in his back pocket. Huh? <laughs> yeah. He'd he gone and got it. So... That was really when I realized that I think Dean was the guy for me because up until that point, I, I dealt with a lot of negative people, people who kind of told you to stay down, stay grounded, and he was sure. very much like, you can do whatever you want to do. So yeah. I was like, yeah, this is this is where we want to go. Dean was injured not long after that, and so then we both went into private security, and we've been working in that arena ever since. And there's a lot more to tell there, but that would be the start. Fantastic. Dean, can you talk a little bit about your background? Yeah, so I was, um, my father was in the military, so I, I was born into a military family. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were called Pads Brats um, <laughs> growing up. <laughs> and um, similar to Alana, my my parents split up at an early, when I was eight years old, and my mother took me and my sisters um, up to Manchester. But my father used to travel every other weekend. It was about 240 miles each way. Wow. And would pick us up and take us back down to um, down to England. And a couple of years later, it came to a head in court, and the judge made the decision that, or we had to make the decision as the siblings who we live with. And so, at the eldest, at the age of ten, I had to make that decision for me and my sisters because I, I was more, I was obviously very close to my father. Yeah, and uh, we ended up moving back down with him. Mm-hmm. My father then not long left the military and we sort of left the environment, moved out to the country uh, in England and finished my schooling. I never had any aspirations of being in the military myself. I always wanted to be a fireman, actually. So in 1993, there was a very big shortage of, of jobs. Uh, there was a recession, mm-hmm. very difficult to get a job. And I, I, I went to college, um, but unlike Alana, Alana's very academic. You know, she skipped that over. You know, she went into full-time work, but she still managed to get A stars in all of her... Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, schooling whereas i didn't i have a i had a love for for sports so we're totally the opposites where alan was uh restricted from doing sports i i i enjoyed doing that so i i told my father i wanted to join the military and he told me i'd last two minutes it probably wasn't the words you the warm comfort words you'd expect <laughs> um but in hindsight it was probably reverse psychology yeah and my father he was the ted lasso of of the uh the army you know he was the he was the army soccer player manager and stuff so i never really knew much about the military as in like 
who did what who did what role i'd never heard of the special forces all i saw was my dad kicking a football around yeah um he was known as a tracksuit soldier so he sat down and he sort of explained the military to me i joined the army joined the royal engineers like my father to try and get as much as i could from my time in the military and then you know a short short period of time i was a para i was a commando i was a diver i'd done all the arduous courses that you could do and then the last option for me then was tier one special forces. So it wasn't yeah. something I always wanted to do. It's just a natural filter in, in, in my time in the military. And I joined, I joined special forces at the height of war on terror. It was the busiest time in UK and US special forces history. So mm-hmm. we were doing a lot of, um, a lot of very exciting jobs and roles. And uh, I, I sort of joke what these kids play nowadays on call of duty. <laughs> that was our lifestyle day in, day out. And yeah. For me, I'd I'd reached my pinnacle. I thought I'd reached my pinnacle in my life. I was now working alongside like-minded individuals who were driven. We had a role. We had a purpose. And as Alana, Alana and I then met, and probably one of the reasons I fell in love with Alana as well is the fact that she was probably one of the one of the first women I I met who didn't tell me to leave the military. You know, she embraced what I was doing. Yeah and got and got fully supportive but as alana touched on i had a had a parachuting accident not long after we'd met probably about uh seven months after we we got together and um so she'd see me at my best and then she'd then see me at my worst um and so i was told after the parachuting accident that was your that's your time done so after 16 years of service um it's time to leave but all i'd ever known up until then was the military whether it was either growing up in that environment or been in the military myself um, but thankfully for me alana's very entrepreneurial mm-hmm. i can tell yeah yeah she set up our first security company on her blackberry uh over over the dinner table which for me would be like you know three months of paperwork <laughs> where i ticked the right box and so i was going through an identity crisis at the time yeah i'd gone from what i'd loved knowing yeah. what i was doing to now where do i fit in society and right alana getting skipped over it slightly but Alana was also eight months pregnant ah. <laughs> when I left. So that I'd left the military, she was now eight months pregnant. So oh, I wow. was like, yeah, my worry was how am I going to support Alana? Uh, is there any work out there? Sure. And within 48 hours, our first security job came in was to help to set up the British embassy in Benghazi during the Arab Spring. And that probably takes us to the start of that. was your first job? Our first job, yeah. <laughs> first job. So it's all about <clears throat> good timing. Yeah, yeah. Good timing, for sure. So Gaddafi was now in Tripoli. Yeah. And all the oil companies, security companies, everyone, uh, the media all gathered in Benghazi. Yeah. Yeah, this is 2011, right at the beginning. So Gaddafi's still in power. Um, this is when the start of the Arab Spring really, really exploded yeah and i saw that the i call them the big five the largest security companies in the world i saw that they were charging six seven figure sums for crisis management and evacuation plans yeah weren't actually in place um they were were getting retainers and a lot of money from the oil and gas and the ngos and at this period now i was telling alana i want to find a niche within the industry i didn't want to be doing what my friends were doing right in iraq or afghanistan and you wanted to start your own company, not join one of these big ones, because they're huge yeah. behemoth military contracting companies. Exactly. And and I'd never been self-employed before because the military was my employer. Um, and Alana, Alana had worked for other people before, but 
I think between us, the experience that we had, and I say we had, yeah, Alan had, um, we could go self-employed, and 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 that's what I did. So I, uh, there was a huge proliferation of we- uh, weapons in Libya at the time. They didn't want it being another Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah. So I flew back um, from Libya. Alana gave birth to our daughter Molly, and then I flew back in to Libya and I bought 30 weapons on the black market and I buried them between Tunis and Egypt, mm-hmm. designed our own evacuation plans. And as Lana said, we live in Aberdeen, which was the oil and gas capital of Europe. So it's the Houston mm-hmm. uh, of Europe. Mm-hmm. So we had a lot of oil companies in our backyard and we sold that um, evacuation plan retainer to them. Oh, okay. I think we made that decision early on that we didn't want to work. It was definitely the easy option. Like Dean could have easily have got a job, sure. you know, a good, well-paid job, but yeah. we said we we're going to set up this. And we we were completely winging it to start with. It was like we were being asked for like weekly reports. So we created something called the Libya Focus. That was it. And it was basically a newsletter that we just gather information and give it to these companies. Yeah. Um, and we would just type this up every week based on the information that we were given from other people and other sources. So it looked very impressive, but it was a kind of swan, you know, the swan effect looking great on the top and the kind of paddling underneath. Um, and what Dean was saying about when I had my daughter, um, he was in Libya and Libya got declared a no-fly zone and I was due to give birth any second now. And I, and I was like, you have to get home. Like, <laughs> get home. <laughs> Um, so he managed to make it back just in time for her birth. And then we got home at five o'clock that evening after she was born and he was away again at 5 a.m. the next the next morning. So wow. it was an intense lifestyle for sure. Very intense. And what gave you the idea that you could create your own private security company? You had never done anything like this before. You just had a sense that, oh, we can pull this off. Dean calls me entrepreneurial, but I'd say that Dean's got the same spark, you know, because in social forces, you have to be self-motivated. You right. have to be all, all the skills it takes to be an entrepreneur is the same thing that a special forces operator is doing. So mm-hmm. the only difference was I knew the business end of it. So I knew yeah. the, the account side, the paperwork, the logistics, all these things. Right. Dean knew what doing on the ground so we had and we'd seen how the other companies worked we'd seen that all they were actually doing was subcontracting people like us anyway that's true to do the work. when i got out as well it was the height of um the somalia piracy yeah so coming from special boat service a lot of my friends had set up their own maritime security companies and were absolutely killing it but we didn't want to do that so we we said well, well let's set up our own company and do something different and, and when you when you tell people you're in the security industry, you know, not so much Alana, because Alana is a close protection officer, a surveillance officer as well, but mm-hmm. she blends in. When when I tell people I'm in security, I think they think I'm a, a doorman from the local nightclub. But it's actually, <laughs> the security industry is very diverse. You know, we touched on there about crisis management, uh, maritime security, close protection, there's surveillance, there's coaching and mentoring, there's executive protection. There's so many facets. Yeah. And I was very lucky that Alana enable me to do those ad hoc so every time there was a phone call it was a different country it was a different task and i was learning so much in a short period of time about the industry so one phone call you know take the uae royal family super yacht from barcelona to maldives that's mm-hmm. nice and the next one is <laughs> you know can you go train the kurdish special forces to fight isis yeah. and so each one was like going from the extreme glamour 
<laughs> to literally yeah, yeah. Uh, being in, in the desert again. And so in a su- short period of time, Milan and I really gathered a lot of information about the industry, but also we're building a network as well of people from these countries that we use, those third parties. And so that's what really helped us. Were you doing this by yourself? But I imagine you're bringing in other people as well, right? Yeah. Scale up and scale down as, as it was required, you know, so it- Okay. We've probably done everything from the single guy jobs right up to, I mean, at one point, Dean had an army of 180 people ready to wow. to, to move in on a, a specific task. Um, so we've done, we would we would literally scale up and scale down. But it was interesting because like, a lot of my friends would say, well, you know, like, why doesn't he just do a normal job and be here and be home? And I think it was lucky for us because we understood the nature of each other and we understood what both wanted to achieve and what we both wanted to do so we were able to be as flexible as we needed to be and work you know when things like Arab Spring happen these things don't come along all the time so it was a case of well we need to make hay right well the well not the sun shining but you know yeah so yeah it was there was definitely and again it was just doing what the big companies were doing we would just subcontract other people in to do and it's still very much the way that that we were you know our our cybersecurity, for example, isn't our forte at all, but we know the best people in the world that do it. So, right. if any company, security company, says they do everything, they're lying. They, yeah. they literally, the art about running a good security company is about relationships. So, mm-hmm. we win, we we win the relationship with the client. I mean, as Alana said, then depending on the task, we can upscale and downscale. Right. And for and you you guys call them 1099s. Yeah. They're literally 1099s. Yeah. Um, who who actually don't want to get involved with setting up their own business. They're quite happy. You tell me where I go, how much I'm getting. Yeah. But for 1099, then us as a company don't have to worry about pensions as well. So it, it, we have the luxury of upscaling uh and and downscaling. But and and as Alana said there, it's it's we were the big five were always coming to me and my friends anyway to deliver. Private security companies like the one Alana and Dean run offer protective and preventative measures to individuals, businesses, and other entities to safeguard against risks, threats, and terrorist or criminal activities. These services encompasses roles such as private security, surveillance and monitoring, access control, event security, cybersecurity, personal protection, investigations, security consulting and risk assessment, and security training. According to Fortune magazine, the global private security market was valued at $224.49 billion in 2022, and is projected to grow to $235.37 billion in 2023, and is dominated by behemoths like Lido's, which is valued at around $10 billion, Bose Allen Hamilton, CSRA, SAIC, and CACI International. These companies employ tens of thousands of operatives and do everything from analyzing signals for the NSA to tracking down suspected enemy fighters for U.S. Special Forces in the Middle East and Africa. Because they're so big, these companies, they have overheads, they have thousands of staff we take the middleman out and the client still gets us who's delivering at the bottom or our friends yeah and at least 50 percent cheaper than what they would be paying before um 
where we've been we've been successful in that is we still don't have a website. Everything is word of mouth. Incredible. Incredible. Alana, how did you, in the beginning, how did you get started in terms of getting your first clients? We trained with the best as well. Yeah. I think that's really important. When Dean, obviously, Dean was fully trained anyway when he came out, you know, even training sure. forever. But we, we needed to get our civilian qualifications. So there was a company called Anubis in Hereford, which is where the SAS are based. But the guy who ran it was a former SAS back in the 70s, 80s. He trained the Mujahideen. He was like, he was the, the best of the best, really cool guy, Ginge. So we decided we were going to train with them. And it was a four week residential program. So once we had actually finished with them, there was a network almost built anyway. We had, you know, they they trained us, so they were able to recommend us. Mm-hmm. Um, our first client came in from, I think that was Marsoc, wasn't it, Dean, the first one? Yeah, Marsoc, yeah. It was actually trained the American military, yeah. Oh, <laughs> in in, uh, in North Carolina, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then we would, get, we would get really crazy jobs that, um, I think I had a Russian a Russian ship once who needed escorting through the Gulf of Aden. Again, once I, we were very much, we'll say yes to anything, and then yeah. we'll just work out how to make it happen. Incredible. Happen so that was an interesting one. Um, we've had you know people kidnapped in Colombia. We've had like the the, the variation, but we're we trained in lots of different environments. So I was lucky enough to be able to train on the ship security so there's a ship security officers training package then there's a company security company security allows you to run a ship security and um, this was very much saved for you know navy maritime marines sbs type people but dean had managed to like get me onto the course so i was i was pregnant during that course actually when we were climbing up the side of the ship like boats on the side of it and uh and that again was quite interesting because when I went to the course, it was just Marines that were on this course, just guys. And then there's this pregnant lady kind of sat there <laughs> and it started off a little bit difficult, but yeah. halfway through the course, there was a lot of academics involved with it. A lot of, this was, you were running a ship. So it was, and they were struggling with that side of it. So they were like, Alana, could you help with this? Could you? So by the end of the course, I feel like I had the respect Yeah, and maybe I wasn't going to be able to, you know, shoot guns off the sides of ships and stop, you know, pirates. But I could make the plan. And I think that was pretty much how I thought, well, I'm going to go down that route of doing this background stuff and doing the plan. And Which is a huge part of it, right? Because yeah. for every mission, as, as you described, they're so different. There's a lot of coordination and planning that has to go into it yeah. before you just show up in Colombia and try to free some hostages. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people did, you know, people would try and another huge part of my job was stopping people taking advantage of Dean because Dean would would do anything for anyone. And when everything was happening in Libya, there really was no laws. It was civil war. There was no laws. And the military, the Americans and the British couldn't really step in because, you know, Geneva Conventions and all these various things. So when Dean was on the ground, he was often being asked to do stuff that nobody else could do and while somebody else would be getting paid for it so i was almost there saying uh-uh that's not happening yeah and um, the only time we ever really argued was about things like that where i would be stopping these guys doing this but i would find that when he would be doing missions for other people they you know you could often see them on facebook drinking wine in the pub and like enjoying their time 
when he was doing stuff with me, I was there 100% watching every move he was making Yeah, and, you know, planning the next step, planning where he was going, looking into, you know, even things like checking Twitter feeds for up-to-date stuff that was actually happening. Working together with Alana handling the business side of things and providing logistical support and Dean operating on the ground, they have proved to be a more economical and effective solution than most of the big international security companies. Their reputation grew through word of mouth. Soon, Dean found himself in hot spots across the globe, like Somalia and Libya, where Arab Spring had turned into NATO bombing and the campaign to overthrow strongman Omar Gaddafi. Dean and Alana took an intelligence-led approach. While Alana monitored the conditions on the ground in different countries via social media, Dean used skills he had learned through his training to adapt to different situations. They learned that the key to success was working with and getting along with the local people. You know, especially during Arab Spring, Arab Spring was a lot about social media. Yeah. So you were getting a lot of information there that you wouldn't necessarily get elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So Dean, what was it like in... Benghazi in 2011, 2012. I mean, that that was a wild, wild time, right? Yeah. So 2011, when we first went in, surprisingly enough, I, I flew in uh, ahead and they, uh, they needed another 30 guys to come in. Um, the UK government had issued as uh, weapons, like these MP7 weapons, which the police mm-hmm. use. Um, but I was like, I made a quick ground assessment as well. And the Libyans there were protecting us. So we didn't actually need them. And then this team then flew in from Afghanistan and Iraq. We're very much used to having yeah. weapons. And it, they felt really uncomfortable. Um, but it felt safe. The Libyans, you know, they were they were now, you know, Gaddafi was now surrounded in Tripoli. They saw that the Western world were helping. You know, it was all good. And then, and then for a period of time after that, after the Arab, Arab Spring, you know, Libya looked like it was getting... A lot better. There was a lot of Western companies coming in, some of the big names. A lot of oil there. Yeah, a lot of oil. Well, seventh largest uh, oil uh, oil fields in the world. Um, so is the Dubai of the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. But then there was lots of issues with trust, tribal influences. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, you've got the oil in Benghazi, but you've got the politics in Tripoli. You know, there's a lot of lot of friction, and then it suddenly then spiraled out out of control, which mm-hmm. was which was sad to see. But I did literally just come back from the London Olympics. So one thing I wanted to mention earlier when you guys yeah. were chatting is actually in the security industry, it's the risk reward ratio isn't balanced. So you could be out in some very dangerous places in the world on fifty percent of what you could be doing sat with one of the main sponsors at the Olympics or, or the World Cup, which, which fascinates me. It's like yeah. less risk and more money. So, yeah. And that's where we sort of, tr- we're, we're trying to target ourselves. As well. Let's go for the, the the more glamorous stuff. But they they come hand, hand in hand. So I literally just finished the London Olympics, spent four weeks in a lovely five-star hotel, going to all the <laughs> all the events. Alana yeah. was there with Molly. Um Next time I'm in the desert again in Benghazi. And then it was September 11th, 2012. And your American ambassador got killed that evening. Yeah. At this point, we didn't really know what was going on. We were just asked if we could help get an oil company, KCA Deutag, out of the city Mm -hmm. and back to Tripoli. 
So when we did our ev evacuation plans, we had safe houses around the country. The weapons were based there, um, but never Touchwood never had to use the, any of the weapons yet. But it was just a, a comfort to know that they're there if we needed them. Yeah. And so I grabbed these guys. I just tipped up and they're like, didn't even know who I was. I was like, yeah, I've come to take you away. And they're like, okay, we'll go wherever you take us. Just get us out of this city. Yeah. And yeah. rather than, you know, as Alana touched on, our sort of approach in security is very much intelligence-led. It's also yeah. monitoring what's going on on social media. Um, the easiest route would be to drive straight across uh, the coastal road back to Tripoli in about eight hours. But the problem you have in Libya is you have various tribal influences. You know, there's mm -hmm. 1,600 tribes. And so taking a driver from Benghazi through Misrata all the way in, into Tripoli would, would uh, cause us issues itself. Yeah. And other people might not be aware of that. And so what we did is we ended up going southwest into Zella, a little little town in the in the middle of the desert. Yeah. In the middle of nowhere. And uh, one of our safe houses was there. And we just monitored we just monitored social media and the news for the next 36 hours just to really get an understanding actually what had gone on in the city. Because at this point we, we weren't aware of what had gone on. We didn't know the American ambassador had been killed. We didn't know that these guys had been killed. We just knew that there was a lot of um, gunfights. And so but whilst this was happening, I had drivers coming in from Tripoli. Mm -hmm. And so really it was a strategic pause to offload the other drivers and, you know, go, go into Tripoli with the, with the right drivers. So then the only issue we had there is when the both drivers from uh, Benghazi and Tripoli met each other, it was like the okay corral, <laughs> they all started pulling their pistols and yeah. I think they were worried about not getting paid, but they actually, you know, they got paid there and then. Yeah. And I had to sit down and explain to them that no, we're at no risk our risk is taking you and they, and they they sort of got it then but I, yeah. where i'm going with that other other people would have just panicked and wanted to get them back to Tripoli and may may have caused themselves um further issues so it's all about understanding that ground truth yeah tribal influences right how do you sort of negotiate and find your way when you're on the road to Tripoli and you run into a group of guys with guns and you don't even know who they are yeah, a lot of it's knowing as well what paperwork you need. A lot of them are oil fields, so sometimes you need to get passes from oil fields. But what we, where we've been successful in in our business is is majority of the work that we have, or security wise, we try and push to the locals. We use as many locals as possible. Mm -hmm. The reason for that is you're putting food on their table, and because you're doing that, they respect you more, I and mean, then they also want you to work and want you to succeed. Sure, and so. It's about having the fixers in the right places. You know, fixer in every country is is like gold dust. Yeah. How do you find those people, Alana? There's a couple of things I would say about Dean. Like we've spoke about his sporting prowess and he's yeah. like got this crazy ability to do things that I've never been seen in, in the physical world. But when it comes to people, he's he can make friends with anyone. And I mean, it doesn't matter if you're dealing with literally the king of england or if you're dealing yeah. with the street cleaner he treats them the same way he makes friends with them and every country that he goes to some of the first things he does the first people he beats he chats to the first you know first hotel he gets to he makes friends with everybody he knows that he has this really amazing way with people um i'm a complete introvert i'm the one behind doing that he's just out there doing this and it's it's this unique gift that he's got that he can do that so he makes these these friends and when he was in Libya he had everybody and it would be things like you know he would be in safe houses of this militia's mother 
in the middle of Ramadan and she would be feeding them <laughs> in this house. Like they just trusted him because he's, I think he shows respect. Yeah. Yeah. Respect is e- everywhere in the world. Yeah. Yeah. We, I remember one time he we went out to Somalia um, uh, to get, get some business and I went there and the gentleman, um, Abshir, he took me to his family's house and, and, and every, all the other security companies, everyone else stays on the, on the military base. Yeah. I grabbed my bags and just walked out the front gate, walked to the first hotel, which was Peace Hotel. And you could see all the locals <laughs> looking at me like this yeah. guy got mad. And then I went in there, the hotel manager gave me an AK-47 and a pistol. And I was like, I'll be fine. But where I was going with this, we went for dinner with his family. And I sat on the floor, shared bread, you know. Yeah. Like as the locals do, I didn't need a knife and fork. I didn't need cutlery. Yeah. And we just talked business. And he's like, ah. he goes, he, he said he must get emails, 10 emails a day from Western security companies in New York, in London, in, in Berlin, offering their security services. He said, but you've come out here. Yeah. You've taken the risk. You've seen it's actually a beautiful country and you understand, you're already understanding us. And so that's how we, how we used to win business. You know, I, I used to go spearfishing in Mogadishu, you know uh-huh. I mean? Grab lobster. It's, it's beautiful. It's just, it's just, unfortunately the world watches the, watches the media. So that's probably where, yeah. again, we build those relationships. We feel, you know, we don't do it by email. You know, if there's a problem, we're going to fly in and we're going to meet you face to face. And they right. love the fact that you've taken a risk sure. coming in. Um, but you've also then seen ground truth, what's actually happening, not what's been relayed by the tv right and you're just dealing with them as human beings exactly and they're all human beings yeah they're all human beings and 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 one thing i know i i I always get slightly upset you know we've talked about one of the missions it is a number of successful missions none of it would be possible if it wasn't for that local influence we alan and i couldn't have done it on our own yeah of course of course yeah but they they, unfortunately get tarnished by one brush yeah because of it you know a couple of incidents but there's places in LA, there's places in London I wouldn't want to go to. That's it. It's, it's going, it's not being naive that you think there's no right. risk at all. You know, it, it, it's not going in that you look scared as well, because people, it's all about sure. body language. They, 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 they see that. But also, and, and one thing that we do as an organization, which Lana has touched on earlier, is, is, the, is the giving back. It's not so much the taking, it's like, you know, this is this is the proposal, this is what it costs. It's, it's also the, the giving back as well. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I remember that one, that trip in Somalia, I had this like TRX um, training uh, device. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just bands and stuff and uh, you hang it off your hotel door. Mm-hmm. So I'm in the Peace Hotel and the, the Somalian government pretty much all stay there as well. And, and the next evening I'm doing lessons, teaching half the Somalian government how to use a TRX, how to do a proper press up and things like that. So my next trip in, I brought I brought in five TRXs and left them in, in the Peace Hotel. TRX, as most of you probably know, stands for Total Resistance Training System. It's a form of suspension training developed by former Navy SEAL Randy Hetrick that uses body weight exercises to develop strength, balance, flexibility, and core stability simultaneously. It's versatile, portable, and effective. It's, it's also business. We've got a cupboard full of trinkets and random <laughs> things that Dean home on missions, but I, I do love some of the, you know, Dean trained the, the Kurdish Special Forces back in 2010. So 12. Was it 12? Yeah. They've gone on to 
you know, really fight and defeat ISIS around. And I, that's, you know, we've got, we got given these gifts from them that one day we'll, we'll give to the kids of like Kurdish gold and it was made into jewelry for, you know, he, he, because they really do. And right now, if we were to phone our friend in Libya, he would, he would be there and he knows that he would, you know, we would give as much as we would take. And it's always been that way. And we'll always help with whatever needs to be done. You know, when they were um, moving to, to London, we gave all the support and help that they needed. But I, I do feel that there's certain types of security companies out there that it is a powerful job. It's a job you're doing that does have. So sometimes the ego can get involved and then they want to show people and, and make them aware of who they are and they present themselves as almost better than that person they're talking to. And then it just becomes really arrogant and really aggressive. And then that's how it how it fails. And I think that from the, the debt collecting world, I was like, that never worked. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting how both of your backgrounds sort of like fed into this because you were in special forces. Yeah. And so, and I don't think most people in the United States know what special boat service is, but it's it's sort of like seen seal team six yeah here, it's, 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 right it's, it's it, amphibian and that's it yeah so you have here you have seal team six and delta force and in the uk we have the sas and the sbs and actually delta force was formed from the sas colonel beckwith spent two years with the sas and then came ah. back in 1977 and formed delta force right here where you have delta force or the unit cag have their own selection and seal team six have theirs actually the sas and sbs is combined Ah. I mean, in size of units, there's only 250 of us. You know, we're not. Ah. Yeah, we're very, very. Um, but but it's that same mentality of spe special forces mentality yeah. of, of embedding with the, with, with the local community, right? Yeah, well, that's it. You know, Hollywood doesn't help matters. You know, when you see, you know, Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham and, you know, the expendables all hanging on the bottom of a helicopter and biceps, bombs and bullets, I call it, you know, which 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 people like to see. That's 25% of the special forces actually 50 percent, as you touched on is is support and influence it's hearts and minds being embedded yeah. with locals that's that's the true special forces that 25 percent of the offensive action has to be your very last resort and so that's right. what we've taken into or what i've taken in from my time in the special forces into these projects yeah one thing i picked up on when we first so i when dean was first injured i moved down to the camp to to stay with them so we were staying on camp and you know i was i was living with these guys and i i think there's probably one or two that i would say oh gosh yeah you're special forces the rest of them like absolutely look nothing like what you would imagine the, the hollywood portrays as a special forces operator and um, you know you've got one guy that i would sit and talk about wine with who's a wine <laughs> connoisseur like you know, you'd be talking about gardens and um all sorts but the one thing they all had was that level of intelligence, yeah. that level of um, being able to talk to people right. and have that skill. I mean, there was a couple of the big guys, but I remember watching the Expendables, although I love Sylvester Stallone, but yeah. the first Expendables, they have a Somalian pirate attack on a ship. And, you know, not one of those guys were Somalian, I could tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> big Nigerian guys or something. And they're like being right. portrayed as these big, tough guys who are like, I mean, pirates were just doing their job. You know, they, they yeah. lost their fishing abilities. Sure. What we done to their country. They're and, not doing this because this is what they yeah. choose to do. Yeah. 100%, yeah. And any people that we know that had been held hostage by them or kept, 
they were always treated very well. That you know, the hostages got fed better than they did. You know, they, they were mm. like looked after because this was now their business. This is a way to feed the family. So you had to, show, right? You know, I've seen videos out there of you know people shooting at pirates and doing all these things. You never needed to do that. If they knew the boat was armed, they generally left the boat alone. They were yeah. going for the easy money because they weren't, you know, they weren't these big, huge, tough guys with like it, they were their their young lads just trying to feed their families. I was in Brazil doing the the World Cup, which was great. You know, and at the World Cup, you're you're doing security work. Yeah, yeah, doing security. They were doing security work. We ended up just blending in. You know, Visa was the the client who were the, one of the main sponsors. Mm-hmm. And, and and as you can imagine, with these big sporting events, they have security anyway. They have law enforcement. They have everything else. So we literally were given tickets, and we were there with the VIPs. The VIPs didn't even know we were security, and we are just there if there is an incident to then sort of yeah to move in, yeah, get them moving, you know, get them in the right direction and things like that. So actually, you know, I think between the four weeks in the Olympics and the four weeks in, in Brazil, I, I handed out one paracetamol, you know, and other than that, I just watched <laughs> the rest of the games, which, which is good because it means a success means the security organizations have done their job as well. So yeah, it's just an additional layer, but um, yeah, we, we get a phone call from the Canadian embassy uh, in, in uh, Tripoli. It's mm-hmm. now the, the uh, Tripoli war, civil war between the militia and government. And they're like, you know, we've heard of you guys. You know, everyone else has left. All the embassies have gone. All the other security companies have gone, and we're we're stuck behind. So it was eighteen military and four diplomats. So we flew in, and um, yeah, single handedly got got them out. And when we were doing the planning, you know, they were con- they were concerned because the week before the British embassy got shot at at every mm-hmm. checkpoint on the way to trip uh, to Tunis, and it's only a hundred kilometer stretch. So myself and my fixer, we went out and spoke, didn't speak to the guys with the guns. Yeah. You know, we spoke to the tribal elders yeah. and they told us that, yeah, they just drove straight through. They didn't tell us who they were. We didn't know who oh. they were and, and things like that. And so yeah, yeah. we actually said, well, look, we're going to be moving in a couple of days. These are the vehicles. This is the time we're looking at moving. And it was all about respect, uh, having communication, showing them respect. Yeah. We, you know, we... Yes, we parted a few hundred dollars, which is fine, but that's, right. you know, that just gets more coffee and biscuits, and then we can yeah. we can carry on chatting. So that, yeah. that was an element of communication. The issue that they then had is they had six vehicles, and um, there was a lot of sensitive equipment which needed to go with them. They couldn't get them into the vehicles because there's diplomatic laws that no, no one can enter a diplomatic vehicle, so they could put their weapons in there. So... Again, a bit of understanding the the ground from Tripoli. There used to be there's a big fishing port in Tripoli, so they used to export fish across to Tunis every day. So these fish wagons would do this trip every day. Wow! But what we did is we we hired two fish wagons and we put all the sensitive equipment in them because I knew that they weren't going to get stopped at the border. Yeah, because they they, they, they see them every day. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. So it was just thinking out of the box. Right. Right. Yeah, we, we got eighteen military and four diplomats safely uh, back to back to Tunis. No, uh, no problem. No, no incidents. No, no shootouts. No, no nothing. No shootouts. Yeah. No nothing Which at all. Which is no what need. you want to avoid. You don't want to exactly. shoot out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And a, a good friend of ours, uh, Richie, actually, he was there a couple of days before, and he would the security company that his company had employed were. We're, we're tripping and falling and, you know, they're taking their time. And he's like, Dean, I need to get out. So I literally got this rinky-tink taxi, which, you know, I wouldn't even get in this taxi. 
And I just threw him in the taxi and he he, he sent me a photo that afternoon. He's sipping pina coladas in Tunis <laughs> while the security company's still trying to get the shit together back in Tripoli. But it's yeah. just about going low profile because no one's stopping that taxi. <laughs> yeah, and not trying to drive through with, with machine guns hanging out yeah. the windows. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't charge charge very minimal for that that task. And what later actually, you know, fast forward seven or eight years, whatever it works out to be. Um, when Afghan happened and we everything was going on there, we had a group of women we were desperately trying to get out and we we, we couldn't work out a way with the, that it was going to happen. You know, as you know, none of the governments were helping. We weren't getting it. Yeah. But one of the people who was involved in that rescue, we were able to contact and then they made that happen. So we were able to leverage your, yeah, yeah, your, yeah. Um, do something that nobody was, nobody else was able to do. So, uh, the the relationships are always kept, I guess, is what we're yeah, and key key yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's hard as well when you're in situations like that, especially like Afghan. You know, we were able to get people didn't have the money, but there's flight that's being paid for by an insurance company and it's got twenty spare seats. Yeah, let's fill those seats. So ah. I, I find it difficult because I can't see a value when, especially in the special forces, in what we do, I don't see a value on on a person's life. <laughs> Whereas Alana, yeah rightfully does otherwise we'd be doing everything for, for, for free yeah uh, no it's, yeah. It's, it's it's a real balance it's, of it's course, hard of course it is yeah well you two are you're sort of perfect you know perfect for one another <laughs> yeah. it's amazing yeah i never talk money i know yeah, yeah. Alana, <laughs> alana has a book called how to ask some money yeah no it's fantastic the security industry is really mostly populated by ex-military yeah. that come out that want to continue what they're doing and a lot of the work that you are doing is helping people so it's very difficult to then send an invoice for that or if you're going to sure you know if somebody's been taken hostage and you need to go rescue them like how do you then send a bill for that yeah and i always say that look this is what is the value of that person's life to their company to their family you know and you have a very special skill to be able to do this you have to be able to invoice for that um, and I think that that's why a lot of security companies fail. A lot of them fail because they just don't know how to do the back end properly. Yeah. They don't know how to invoice. The amount of guys I've seen that have got piles of invoices unsent because they're nervous to send the invoice. Uh, they just don't understand the value. Of they don't have somebody like you <laughs> <laughs> with your background. I mean, being a bill collector as a, you know, a young person certainly trains you for it's the same, the same kind of skills, right? Yeah. I mean, I started in door-to-door sales, you know, when I was a teenager, I was knocking on doors in the middle of winter in Scotland, asking people to buy things from me. That was probably one of the hardest, hardest jobs to do. And when you kind of have the confidence there to do that, then going on to other things. But that's definitely one of the biggest, it's funny because you've got the toughest guys who have done some of the most dangerous jobs in the world and the most craziest missions, but ask them to send a bill for their own worth is like, no, how to ask for money. I wrote that because I, I'd seen so many people scared of asking for money. I'm the same way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's up there with people's biggest fears. But Dean absolutely hates it. He hates. Same here. The analogy I use, uh, Ralph, when, when you're in the special forces and you're planning a mission, for example, Afghanistan, I need... I need two Blackhawk helicopters. I need a UAV. I need fast jets. I need 40 guys. I need this amount of ammunition. Mm-hmm. No one gives me a bill in the military. It's automatically there for you. Everything yeah. you ask for is there. So you don't understand the value of, of what it is. And so I don't have to do a proposal or an NDA or 
a scope of work and then all of a sudden you've been coming to this world as well it has to be itemized. yeah yeah so it's, <laughs> it's going from that and that's where it sort of sweeps that up for me dean and alana are motivated to help people in need as i mentioned earlier this year alana received an mbe from king charles for her work supporting vulnerable women and mental health awareness so in august 2021 when Afghanistan was falling to the Taliban and tens of thousands of locals who had previously worked for the U.S. and its coalition partners were facing reprisals and desperate to flee the country, Dean and Alana rolled up their sleeves and got to work. So let's talk about Afghanistan. How did you initially get involved in that? It's, it's actually quite funny. So a big part of Dean's story is after he left Libya and found a new he ended up breaking two world records by cycling from Argentina to Alaska. Yeah. He then um decided he was going to kayak the Nile. So we'd been working with a kayak company at the time. Mm-hmm. Afghan started to happen and the lady who had the kayak company called us and said, Look, we've got this lady in Afghanistan. She's a high target, high risk. Um, and basically, this lady that actually set up the, the underground girls' schools back in 96 when the Taliban banned education for girls. Yeah. Uh, so she was responsible for bringing education to girls. And then all this time she'd been doing this. So she was kind of number one on their list. Mm-hmm. So um, we got the call and they said, look, can you do something to help? And, and naturally, just as problem solvers, we were like, yeah, let's see what we can do. Mm-hmm. And that was really the first step into it. And we got her out along with 20 of her uh, female colleagues. And then it was just call after call after call just started coming in from that that moment onwards. How were you getting them out? So we initially thought that we were going to get full government support. We thought like these things were going to be easy, but it turned out to be the exact opposite. And really, you were relying on the network. You know, the, yeah. the network of, of people that were involved became the ones that were doing it. It was literally an operation on WhatsApp, Signal, um, all these apps. And you were yeah. just firing between different groups. And this per- and it really was just, there was a couple of people on the ground. But other than that, it was, okay, this gate's open. Everybody and you know it didn't help some of the things the government were doing they were sending emails out telling people to go to the hotel and the hotel was then being attacked by the taliban and yeah we were then having you know we had we had a lot of safe houses so i think that was a big a big benefit for what we were doing but so you established your own safe houses in kabul where people could go yeah you could you could move them from there so where we where we specialize in and um i don't want to give away our, our total usp here to all the other companies but basically all the insurance companies when they do these evacuations they they you know they they can get an aircraft into the airport yeah they're not responsible in getting you to the airport and that was the hard part that was hard and i've seen it before in 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 latin america where they've done evacuations and the, and the person's 70 miles away they've got to make their way 70 miles themselves to the evacuation point so it's yeah. very easy getting getting it's getting them to the aircraft so we call it the first mile we focus on that bit uh-huh. Start point to there, safe houses, uh, trigger points uh, along the way, using locals as well. When we were actually, and I'm, I'm not embarrassed to say it, we also were liaising with the Taliban. Yeah, The Taliban didn't want 
there to be an incident during this process it makes them look bad you know it was ISIS that, that was the, it was the trouble yeah they're the ones who set off the the, the bomb at the at the gate and exactly yeah. Yeah, yeah and and the reason the people were were unlike libya and stuff we were doing there we were physically going in this was a paper exercise you know we yeah. we, we we got we assisted in 1200 people coming out and probably wow. tenfold had to say no to so many others because they didn't yeah. have the right paperwork there wasn't a host nation there wasn't a yeah. sponsor yeah. Uh, and, and such where the issues were is the fact that once people had their paperwork they were given a window a four-hour window on a certain day that they have to go to the gates but people weren't waiting as soon as they got their paperwork they were at the gates and that's where you had this this obviously this mass confusion yeah you know hindsight's a great thing i don't know why they did it in kabul they should have done it in bagram which is an airport right out in the middle of nowhere and literally yeah. anyone who needs to get evacuated goes there you put it in the middle of a city no, the planning and coordination was um there wasn't any it was horrendous yeah um you had the we were actually at some points we were liaison between the british troops at free para to the american military who were only 800 meters away on the same airfield there was no there's no line of communication so it was just it was just a total mess and we were just trying to help where we but coordinate it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. I can show you the best of humanity, though I must admit, when we were working, I mean, it, we got pulled into it and then we were in it. I mean, we're yeah. still now, there's still, there's still evacuations happen now, but the people that were all helping and involved and that you were getting calls from, and yes, you were having to turn people away, but when you were seeing people who were literally, I think at one point we were three days, zero sleep. It was just around the, around the clock. Yeah, uh, there was other people doing the same thing, and you were seeing all these people coming together to help strangers and help these people um, get to safety. It was it was a, such a touching display uh, display of what humanity yeah. is. No governments were helping. Nobody that should have been helping was helping, but that didn't matter to everyone. We were all just involved, and we were just going to do it. And there was no yes, there was people that were trying to profiteer from it for sure, mm -hmm. um, and you know they know who they are and they can be as ashamed or unashamed as they want to be, but the people who were really doing it for the right reasons were so incredible to me. Yeah. No, I've spoken to a, a bunch of them, and everybody was just sort of operating by the seat of their pants, but with totally good intentions. Mm. And these were people that they didn't even know, Yeah, right? They had just gotten a reference from somebody. Yeah, we were quite lucky. We had a facility in Afghanistan like a medical facility for 10 years that we'd use. So we already had that ground connectivity, which was, yeah, which made it easier for us. But as Alana said, it was great to see humanity. Everyone wanted to get involved. Yeah. I think the benefit of, of what we, and the way that we, because we'd done it using our previous skills, yeah, everything was done right. So our people that we've got out have all been put to host countries. Um, you know, they're all either working now or they're, you know, they've got their life set up because, there was this two-year window of the past for them to be able to, now there's people still, you know, there's kids still trapped in cages in Pakistan. There's people that were sent to, you know, there was a lot of human trafficking going on, breaches and rules and paperwork. But sure. I've seen that people just wanted to get people out. People were like, we just want to get them out. But yeah. for the after stage, none of the papers done right. And, but this was because there was just normal Joe people doing it, trying to get, well, whereas we were lucky that we had, the right processes in place to be able to do it properly and make sure that the people... I mean, people understand the nuances of an evacuation. As Alana no. said, it was great yeah, for humanity. So people 
wanted to help, but actually a lot of them now are being investigated for human trafficking now. Oh gosh. Yeah. Because they didn't have the right protocols or pr processes in place. And so that's, that's why we had to say no to so many thousands because we didn't want to then ourselves be investigated. We had to make sure that it was all above board. It was, it was hard. Uh, yeah. So, you know, um, wow. uh, and, and frustrating as well. Alana touched on people profiting from other people's uh, misery and, and yeah, there's a time and place to profit. Yeah. And that wasn't, that wasn't it. You know, people in the media were going out there with their TV crews and then wanting to be the savior. And then three days later in Ukraine and totally forgotten about Afghanistan because it's not <laughs> trending. That that was what was frustrating for me. It was like, yeah, Afghanistan's yeah. still a problem. You know, we're still operating in Afghanistan. We're still helping. And one, one real big difference between Afghanistan and Ukraine was Afghanistan, the men left and the women, kids stayed behind, which I thought was wrong. Yeah. Whereas in Ukraine, the men stayed behind and the women and kids left. You know, that was the big differences between the two mm. people ask us, you know, are there any similarities? I said, no, but there's a lot of differences. Yeah. We had one family in particular and the, the, the father had got out and I believe he was in Germany and we were able to arrange for the, the, the wife and kids to, to get there. Um, but he wanted to come to the US and he was like, no, leave them there until we can get the pass to get to the US. And it was like, <laughs> yeah, hey, buddy, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's not like a holiday brochure. You just pick <laughs> where you want to go. But that's what it started turning into in the end. It's like, yeah, you're safe. Let's get your wife and kids to you. And he's like, I want to come to America. And it's like, Dude, okay. Yeah. What are you okay, doing? Yeah. yeah. As you touched on before, uh, I don't think people realize that it's in the midst of all these uh, tragedies like Ukraine, Afghanistan, the transition, that people take advantage of it. And a lot of the human trafficking kind of takes place. Yeah, well, Alana's, just to jump in, because she won't tell you. So Alana's just been honored. Uh, she's been given the MBE from King Charles for her services to vulnerable women in human trafficking. So wow, you mentioned human trafficking, I go quiet, because Alana yeah. Yeah. is the expert <laughs> on this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What an honor. Any disaster, anytime there is an earthquake or yeah. anything that goes on in the world, that's when they swoop in. As soon as there's going to be a vulnerable spot, yeah. you know, kids left without parents, any of these types of things, they, they, they move straight in for that. Yeah. And there's a lot of people out there who who go and who know that's going to happen and they'll go and try and stop them. But yeah, it is the kind of number one time for, for these things to happen because there's, you know, easy pickings for them. And a lot of times they disguise themselves as working for humanitarian organizations. Yeah, it's really how we actually got started in the security, really. is um, I had a phone call from a friend, a uh, lovely lady, Celia. She she was out there. Hated, the Haiti earthquake had hit. She'd gone out. They'd been building the makeshift orphanages for the, the kids to go to, but the traffickers had built these orphanages. The kids were going, and this was an under five orphanage. So there was, you know, 18 wow. months babies. There was, yeah. and she was going out there to try and, to try and stop this. And she had a price tag in her head immediately. And it was $5. That was how much it would have cost to take her out. Um, so she said to me, can we get some security to go in? And I was speaking to all these security providers and they were all like, you know, charging big bucks to go and help her. And I was like, somebody's yeah. got to do this for free, for goodness sake. This is like, and that's when I turned and said to Dean, look, I want to be able to do this. Anytime somebody asks me this, I need to be able to go and do it. And that's why we went and trained uh -huh. with uh, James Johnson at the time um, to make sure that, that if that call ever happened again, we would be we would be ready. And I think um, 
we did actually get the call about Haiti recently and we were able to help, which was which was a, a good uh, 360. But um, yeah, there's there's a lot of bad in the world, but there's a lot of good people. In 2016, Dean began training for the biggest challenge of his life. His plan was to cycle the entire 14,000-mile length of the Pan-American Highway, the longest motorable road in the world. But there was just one little problem. Despite his long military career and proficiency with a huge range of vehicles and weaponry, he had never cycled more than a few miles. But Dean believes in the ability to adapt to new challenges, in having the confidence to overcome the insurmountable. Together with his wife, Alana, he prepared to do more than just complete the ride. He was going to do it faster than anyone had ever done it before. In May 2018, he completed the journey, gaining not one, but two world records. The fastest person to cycle the entire length of South America and the fastest cycle journey of the Pan American Highway. With his final time of 99 days, 12 hours, and 56 minutes, Dean smashed the world record by 17 days and became the first person ever to make the journey in under 100 days. So, Dean, let's talk about your incredible world record-breaking bike yeah. trip. Yeah. And how did that come about? I mean, because you had had a... Not too long before that, you had had like this terrible accident, uh, falling out of a helicopter or, or getting tangled in the in the rigging. Got caught up in the rigging line on a parachute. Yeah, so that's why I left the military, as we we mentioned earlier. So I was told I could never run again. Um, and so, from the time of leaving the military to the Canadian embassy was about is a five year period. So I totally neglected my own physical and mental well being because we've been so fixated on on the work. Yeah. I came back from the Canadian embassy and Alana was there with a, a dinner, made a couple of bottles of wine and sat down and re- realized that I'd only been home 21 days in a 365 day calendar. Wow. And you had uh, how many kids at this point? Uh, we only had Molly at this point. Okay. Okay. Still only had Molly. Yeah. Okay. And, and soon realized, actually, I hadn't come to terms with the fact that I'd left the special forces. I was trying to match that adrenaline rush. I thought Alana wanted me to go away to be earning money. When, in fact, as well as the security company, Alana was running a very successful property development company. So I actually didn't need to be going away. So I, don't, I disconnected from society. So I took a sabbatical from the security industry and worked with Alana. And I just bought a push bike off Amazon, just cycled to him from the office, but just being physically active again, as in the cardiovascular exercise, I, I felt like there was a, a huge weight off. But you can imagine with our backstory, you know, me and Alana sat in these architects and planners meetings. And actually, Tommy was born actually then, Alana, because I was. Yeah, I, I gave birth to Tommy during the planning of. During the of, planning, that was it, yeah. So I'm sort of <laughs> sat there, Alana's um, d- holding the meeting, and I'm just like, ah. Uh, not really interested in anything anyone's saying. And she she could see that glaze in my eyes and said, look, you need to do something, but not smuggle people across borders, but be yeah. physically, mentally engaged. So I said, well, I've always fancied doing a world record. And it's about a month before my 40th birthday. And Alana's, well, what in? And maybe now I should have gone for the Ferreira Roche challenge and at 12 in a minute. But I said, well, cycling seems quite good. Mm-hmm. 
I was thinking living in Scotland, maybe east coast to west coast to Scotland. Alana <laughs> then found the world's longest road, which runs from <laughs> southern Argentina to northern Alaska, 14,000 miles over Incredible. Incredible. 22,000 kilometers over 14 countries and two continents. And a range of mountains. Oh, a range of mountains, the Andes, the Rockies. <laughs> you had everything from the Atacama Desert, which is plus 47 degrees centigrade to minus 20 in, in Alaska and everything in between. So I said, yeah. perfect. Let's do that one. <laughs> so I never mean to sound arrogant. I don't know if any of your listeners are probably cyclists. They probably think this is amazing, but I'd only cycled 20 miles before I applied for the world record. And Guinness came back and said, yes, you've been successful on your, on your application. So we covered our story and we talked about giving back. We also, behind the scenes, Alan and I do a lot in the philanthropy sector. You know, mm-hmm. we're ambassadors for the Special Boat Service Association, the Royal British Legion, a lot of the veteran charities. Um, but a good friend of ours is a, gr- a great philanthropist, is uh, Prince Harry. So him and I met each other oh, now, 17, 16 years ago on a training course together. Uh-huh. We'd done a lot before in charity, behind the scenes, and we rang him up and told him our plans and he was about to launch a campaign with his brother and Kate on mental health. Mm-hmm. So cool heads together. So we, that was the campaign. We had the challenge. The world record was uh, 117 days and we set a target of a million pounds. Um, trained for a year. 125 days and then somebody broke it and it was 117. Yeah, yeah. Someone broke it during my uh, my application. So we already lost it about eight days. <laughs> so it was 117 days and um, yeah, I trained for a year. Alana did all the fundraising, ran the campaign. Wow. And, you know, to keep it short, you know, I broke the world record by 17 days, became the first man in history to do it under 100 days. But then more impressively, Alana raised $1.4 million for mental health as well. Wow. Fantastic. Pretty skimmed over that. That's the biggest <laughs> world record bike ride you've ever heard of. Yeah? <laughs> Fantastic. Up until then, we you know, we didn't have social media. It was very much a taboo in the special forces. The the jobs that we were doing were quite um, high profile. So we were very much underneath the radar. So when we finished the bike ride, I didn't see a career in guest speaking. We didn't see book opportunities, didn't see TV opportunities. Um, you know, we did it so we weren't smuggling people across borders. Um, and so that's when uh, then became more both of us became more public figures in the public and then from that yeah. so yeah. what we're trying to do now is we still do you know we like we're still doing a lot of philanthropy work you know mm-hmm. we're doing a, we'll always do challenges just to keep us physically engaged but what people don't see is is the security stuff yeah and i i and that's why we're being a bit more vocal about it. i had a call with the head of cia in yemen he's like i've just googled you I was like, don't google this you know because you'll see you know authors uh mothers you know philanthropists and will record holders and when in fact actually security is where we've always been we've never left this arena yeah yeah fantastic thank you both so much what incredible people you are individually but as a couple <laughs> you're just amazing you're very inspiring both of you a marriage, uh, you know, made in heaven and just a combination of characteristics and backgrounds that have sort of enhanced each other yeah. together. Like you're an amazing team. I mean, it's really inspiring in a time when all you hear about is, you know, people can't get along and they don't know what their purpose is in life and uh, they're lost and they can't find any value anywhere. I think that's why we 
similar to your, you know, Heroes Behind the Headlines, our podcast that we've just started is uh, called Behind the Scene, like SWN. And it's, it, it is for that reason to bring, we, you know, we have the person who the world sees and the person who's behind and we, we talk to them about how it gets there. Because I think it is really important for the work, because I think it's so common that one person gets to, you know, be in the forefront and do all the things and the other person gives up their career or mm-hmm. you know, maybe have children or whatever it might be. And we hope that, it can help other people. Within 36 hours of the tragic events in Israel that took place on the 7th of October with the Hamas terrorist attacks, Dean Stott was on the ground conducting evacuations with logistical support from his wife, Alana. Though they had previously conducted evacuations in Libya, Afghanistan, and Sudan, They had never operated in Israel before and didn't have an infrastructure of safe houses, local security advisors, and drivers in place. But that didn't deter them. And within a short period of time, they were making an impact. While Dean was rescuing dozens of people from different parts of Israel, Alana was arranging for their travel out of the country. It's a great example of how this amazing couple operates with heart, expertise, courage, and the highest ethical code in the most dangerous situations in the most dangerous parts of the world. They inspire me, and I hope they inspire you as well. You can learn more about Dean and his book, Relentless. And Alana's books include She Who Dares and How to Ask for Money. It's my great honor to name Alana and Dean Stott as today's Heroes Behind the Headlines. Heroes Behind Headlines. Executive producer, Ralph Fazzullo. Produced and engineered by Mike Dawson. Music provided by Extreme Music. For exclusive content, please join our Patreon group at patreon.com slash heroes behind headlines.